Good morning. Well, on April 23rd, 2017, one week after Easter Sunday, Jesus is alive. Amen. Amen. Yes, he is. And we like to talk about Easter as kind of the Super Bowl Sunday for church. And I'd kind of like to think that we're just waiting for the victory parade. And we're living in that time period where we're just living on this anticipation for the king to return. He's victorious. Well, Jesus is alive, and that's the greatest news in all the world. It's, it's the best. You know, don't waste your time coming up to me afterwards and saying, well, I think I might have some better news for you. You don't. Jesus is alive. He defeated sin and death. And that's the gospel. That's, that's the good news. In, in, case, in case you're new with us or, or maybe you've been here for 45 years, it's always healthy to remember what the gospel is. What is it? What is the gospel? What is the good news? It's, it's very simple. First of all, we're all in a bad situation when we're born. We're sinful. We're alienated from God. We're dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins so that we can't even have a relationship with God. But God, because he's rich in grace and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins in our place and rose from the dead. See, the gospel's first about what God has done. And the results that we get from what Jesus did is that we receive forgiveness of sins and we receive eternal life, life with God forever. A new direction, a new purpose. And the only appropriate response to that, the only response that is acceptable to God is to believe. Trust in Jesus Christ, trust in who he is and what he's done for you, that it is enough to save you and turn from your sin. Repent. It's as simple as that, friends. What God has done, what we get, and how to respond. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we have in our hands. That's the good news that we have in our Bibles. It's the good news that we have on our hearts. And when Jesus came, he, and, and, and after he died and rose from the dead, he gave his disciples, people like you and like me, he gave them a mission to accomplish. Jesus actually said, I'm going to entrust you with the best news in all of the world. He gave it to you. He gave it to me. This last week, my, my mother, Nancy, had knee replacement surgery. And for those of you who know her, she's doing great. She's doing fine. In fact, she's probably at home, uh, could be watching this right now on her couch. Hi, Mom. <clears throat> I never got to play in the NFL, and now I get to do it. Hi, Mom. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but she's doing great, and so I, I was hanging out at the hospital uh, late this week, and I was walking down the hall yesterday, and I came across this wall that just kind of shares the history of the hospital and their organization, how they've cared with people over the years, and they had something interesting that was for the doctors and nurses that worked there, and it was a little sign that said, you are the mission. You're the mission of why we exist. You're the reason and the way 
the people, the patients that are entrusted to your care, they're the way, you're the way that they get the care they need. Without you, we cannot achieve our mission. And so they had a, a little statement that said, you doctors, you nurses, are the mission of carrying out, and, and, and you're entrusted with these patients who are in your care to help them get better. You are the mission. Well, when Jesus... When Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, before he ascended to heaven, he said, go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus was telling his followers, you now are the mission. I've been here on this earth all this time, and I've, I've accomplished the mission that my Father's given to me, and now I am passing it on to you. It's the mission that I started. You're not starting a new mission, but you're going to perpetuate. You're going to carry on the mission that I began. And now I'm entrusting it to you. That's what Jesus said. So friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, let me tell you, you are the mission. You are the ones that carry out God's purpose in this world to save sinners. You are how it gets done. It's not through a sermon. It's not through a program. It's not accomplished at a conference. You can't enclose the mission in an event. You can't just fully understand it in a book. You can't portray it just in a movie. No, friends, you are the mission. And so if we're on this mission, if we've been entrusted with this amazing task about telling other people about this good news that we've been celebrating all week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, then we have to think to ourselves, how are we going to accomplish this mission? The title of the sermon today is, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Where the rubber meets the road about being followers of Jesus Christ and carrying on this mission of, of, of preaching and teaching and sharing and showing the good news of Jesus Christ to our world. Where the rubber meets the road, it's, it's, of course, it's a saying that most of us, I think, here understand, but it's that decisive moment. It's where your theory gets put to the test. Now, we love to theorize about great theology here. We love to think about God's Word deeply. I love to think deeply about the Word of God. But when it comes to our mission, we have to ask ourselves, when does it stop becoming just a theory or just a strategy, and when does the rubber actually meet the road? When is our theory going to be put to the test so that we could see people actually receive and come to know Jesus Christ so that we know we are accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave us. And so this morning, I'm going to share with you a very simple illustration. I, I was so blessed to come across it in, in a class I was taking recently on evangelism and apologetics. And, and it's an evangelism wheel. Now, it's not a strategy on how to share the gospel, but rather it's, it's, it's the perspective and the behaviors that every follower of Jesus Christ must embrace so that they can accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. How will you get the wheel moving? So for those of you who loved cars, race cars, trucks, dirt bikes, bicycles, scooters, I don't care, just whatever wheel you like to imagine, 
how are you going to get that wheel moving? You know, if, you, if you're getting ready to go on a great vacation, you know, to the Grand Canyon, and, and your family's all together, and you start planning this great vacation, and you're going to map it out, how you're going to get there, and you're going to pack your clothes up, and you're going to load up the car, and, and, and you're all ready and excited. You've got your itinerary planned. It's all just an idea. It's all just a mission to get somewhere until you actually put your foot to the pedal of the gas, and that wheel starts to turn. Everything else doesn't mean a difference if that wheel doesn't turn and you get moving. So this morning, as we talk about where the rubber meets the road in regard to this mission of of reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, how will we get moving in reaching our world? How will we get moving in impacting the people in our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so, as you can see up there on our wheel, we've got a hub which is right in the center, we've got four spokes that go around, and we've got an outer rim or an outer tire. And what we're going to be looking at is what is at the hub, and that's the perspective that each of us ought to have, must have, if the rubber's going to meet the road in reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you've got at the hub, you've got the perspective, and then around that that hub, you've got four spokes and a tire, which are the behaviors. The behaviors. What are the behaviors that a follower of Jesus Christ needs to be exhibiting in his or her life so that they can be on this mission, so that the wheel can get moving? So let's get started. Let's take a look uh, at the wheel. And, and by the way, um, I did see this in a class. I just want to give credit to Pastor Steve Walker of Redeemer's Fellowship in Roseburg, Oregon. A very helpful uh, illustration and a great guy. So uh, moving on, the very first perspective right at the hub, is that we must die to self. We must die to self. And so if you would, please turn with me to John chapter 12, verse 24. That should be on page 762 if you're using the Pew Bible. John chapter 12, verse 24. And I'm actually going to read verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12, verse 20. It says this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In the verses before 24, we see that Jesus is observing, and he's explaining to those around him that all of the signals that, had, that needed to come for the arrival of his hour were coming. The, the day was coming. His death and resurrection, the reason why he came, his hour, it was coming, and, and all the signals were in front of him. But then Jesus says that in sacrificing himself, he was giving himself up for others. Again, John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, in this metaphor, Jesus is that seed. He is the one who gives himself up so that he could bear fruit. That fruit is you. 
if you're a follower of Jesus. That fruit is me. Now, I don't know about you, but I really think that Jesus' life is way more important than mine. Way more important. But Jesus says, I'm going to allow myself to be killed and I'm going to be buried in the ground for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. Jesus is sacrificing himself out of love so that he could bear fruit in you and so that he could bear fruit in me. And then he goes on to say, likewise, those who follow Jesus will only bear fruit in the lives of those around them when they have the same kind of self-denial, when they have the same kind of sacrificial love for the others in their life. You see, this is a truth that's primarily about himself, but he's saying, if you're going to follow me, though, you've got to be denying yourself or dying to yourself. Friends, at the very core of being on mission with Jesus in sharing this good news with the world where the rubber meets the road, friends, it has to start with dying to ourselves. No greater love does any man have than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. If we want to see any fruit in this mission, if we want to be following Jesus to see people saved from their sins through our testimony, we have to first say, I'm going to die to myself. This is where the rubber meets the road in our hearts. This is the perspective that really kind of controls all of the other behaviors on this mission of following Jesus and, and sharing the gospel with our world. Let me ask you a few questions as we just reflect on Jesus' command to die to ourselves. Do you love yourself so much that you're not willing to give up yourself for the lost people in your life? It's a really convicting thought. And I, I'm convicted in my own heart. How often do I go through my day thinking about myself, number one? I've got to get myself out of bed. I've got to get myself breakfast. I've got to give myself a shower. That's actually for benefit for others, too, I guess, in one way. Got to brush my teeth, get dressed, get out the door, get to work on time. Everybody needs to move out of my way on the freeway. i got to get there. I mean, that's just the way we, we think when we get up. But Jesus is saying, if you, want, if you want anybody in your world, if you want to bear any fruit in seeing people get saved, we first, as a perspective, have to say, I'm willing to die to myself so that I could bear fruit in others. It's where the rubber meets the road in our hearts, friends. Do you love yourself so much that you're not willing to follow Jesus? He's worth it. Dying to yourself. You can follow him, you get Jesus, and you know what? You get to pluck some fruit along the way because your friends, your friends can get saved as we, as you, die to yourself and sharing this good news with them. Well, if you're not seeing any fruit in your life, you, I, we, may need to ask ourselves, when was the last time I died to myself? When was the last time I actually gave up anything for me to benefit someone else? And this is a question that I think especially relates to us here in the United States 
here in California, here in the Bay Area with so much privilege, so much freedom, so much prosperity. So often we think all of these things, my career, my home, my car, my possessions, my purpose, my ending, my retirement, it's for me. That's the American dream. But Jesus says, you won't bear any fruit that way. You won't reach anybody that way. If you're going to reach anybody, if you're going to bear any fruit in your life, you got to follow me and die to yourself. Are we willing to die to ourselves, friends? This is where the rubber meets the road in our hearts. In our hearts. Well, that's the hub of our wheel. Take a look at the behaviors now. That's the, that's the perspective at the very core, at the very hub, to get this wheel moving where the rubber meets the road on mission. What are some of the behaviors then of those who are on mission? Well, the first behavior is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. So if you're using a pew Bible, you could turn to page 839. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 4. It says this. <clears throat> First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This first behavior of, of where, the where the rubber meets the road of living on mission, it starts with the perspective of dying to yourself. And the very first behavior that we could see here is that we ought to pray for the lost. It's pretty simple. Pray for the lost. You probably thought to yourselves, oh my goodness, he's going to talk about, I got to get up and preach in front of people, or, you know, I got to, no, just start by praying. Pray for the lost. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. He says, I urge you, Timothy. It's a strong exhortation. It's an encouragement saying, I urge you to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for, what does it say? All people. All people. That includes everybody. Yeah, that's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. To it's, it's simple. All people. Everyone. Everyone, all people, pray, pray. And then verse 3, it goes on to say, this is good. And it's referring probably right back to praying for all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then it goes on to say, who desires all people, there it is again, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So first of all, we're told, I urge you to pray for all people. And then secondly, we're told that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is amazing, friends. Your prayers for people are connected to God's merciful desire that they are saved and understand the truth. I'll say it again. Your prayers for people are connected to God's desire that they are saved and understand the truth. Maybe if you're like me, you thought to yourself, Man, I sure would like to know that I'm praying in the will of God, that I'm praying the things that He desires, that I want the things that He wants. We have it right here. God, in His mercy, in His mercy, He desires that 
all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. Friends, let me tell you, people are going to be judged one day for their sins. God's justice demands it. But we must be careful that we do not uh, uh, confuse God's justice with his delight. You see, God will punish sin and it satisfies his justice. But the scripture says that he takes no delight when the wicked perish, but he delights in showing mercy. He loves it when he gets to show off his mercy and his grace. And when people come to get saved and to the knowledge of the truth. And so when you're praying for all people in your world, when you're praying for all people in your tiny little bubble that you live in, when you pray for all the people that you come in contact with, when you're praying for uh, high places of government and people that you pass on the street, you're praying in the will of God because He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that people would be saved. Therefore, he urges you to pray for them. Let me ask you a question in praying for all people. I don't know all people. You don't know all people, but there's a lot of people that you know that I don't know. And there's a lot of people that I know that you don't know. And you're probably happy about that. (laughs) There's a lot of people represented in this room right now. You know, if we took, and then there's a lot of crossover, of course, but every single one of us has a whole world of people out there that I or the person sitting next to you, they don't know. That's a lot of people. Are you praying for them? Do you have any room in your prayer life for those you know who need to be saved so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth? Do you save any room in your prayer life This is the first behavior. Again, you got to die to yourself, friends, if you're going to pray this way. Because when I get up in the morning and I'm having my devotions, I'm reading the Word, and and I'll pray, you know, Lord, help me. Help me. Lord, uh, help me today to, you know, to love my wife and my kids. Help me today to not get angry with this person, or help me to not speed too badly, or whatever it may be, or help, you know, give me this day, give me uh, my daily bread. But we can pray so much that it's focused on ourselves, we forget to pray for those around us. Friends, if we're going to pray, we gotta, we got to have a space for those, for all people. Paul urged Timothy, pray for all people. Jesus is urging you today, die to yourself, pray for all people. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your friend. Pray for your coworker. Pray for your, 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 your fellow student. Students, students, pray for those in your class. Pray for them. Pray for them. Do we save any room in our prayer life for those who need to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? That's the first behavior in our our wheel. Next, we'll move on to the the next behavior, and that's found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, found on page 858, if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And this next spoke on the wheel, we've seen that we pray for the lost. This next spoke is that we should behave distinctively. Behave distinctively. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say this. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, we have the command, I urge you, strong exhortation, you should do this. Do it. I urge you to abstain from your fleshly passions. But he says, as you're abstaining from your fleshly passions, you should be keeping your conduct honorable. And that word for conduct is really your walk, how you walk, how you walk in this world, the pattern of your life. What does it look like? Keep your conduct, keep the pattern of your life, how you walk making sure that it's honorable as you're abstaining from the flesh. And here's the reason why. Here's the purpose statement. Here's why you ought to be abstaining from the flesh. Here's why you ought to be keeping your conduct honorable. Here's why. So that seeing your good deeds, they being the Gentiles of that time, being the outside world, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Let me say that again. Abstain from your fleshly passions. Keep your conduct honorable so that those watching may see your good deeds and glorify God. Friends, the purpose of living honorably before our watching world is so that the lost in your life would glorify God. Now, I know there's a lot of you that love to listen to sermons. You love to... uh, Uh, You love to go to classes, Sunday school, and you want to develop your character. And that's good. That's noble. We're to be conformed into the image of Jesus, his perfect image. That's what we're all striving for. But here we get a glimpse into God's purpose. Well, why is that the case? And here is a very important purpose right here. So that they may see your honorable character, so that they may see your good deeds. And when they see it, they'll glorify God. Now, I have to tell you, I was fascinated as I I was studying this. Glorifying God, that phrase, it's never used in connection with unbelievers. Never. It's always used for those that love God, those that are believers, those that are God's people. What Peter's saying here, friends, is that when people see your honorable conduct, when they see your good deeds, when they see you abstaining from fleshly desires, they will actually be converted. And when Jesus comes back, they're going to say, I'm going to stand right alongside you and I'm going to glorify God. Now, Christians in this world, we're we're looked at as pretty weird people. We're weird. I'm weird. Here, Here we come on a Sunday morning, a beautiful day outside, and most of the world is out there watching the game or you know, water skiing maybe, or whatever it is that they're doing today. They're having a good time. And they go, why do you take your whole Sunday morning when you could sleep and go sit in this room and listen to a guy talk for 30 to 45 minutes? That's weird. Another way that we're weird is that we would actually say something like this amongst many other things, is that we actually think, because the Bible says so, that it's a good idea for a man and a woman to stay pure and abstinent until they get married. That is weird. That's really weird in our day and age. But it's what God has said. 
Friends, when we behave distinctively, it actually has the power to take people that say, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with God. But when they see you behaving distinctively, all of a sudden they're converted into God glorifiers. But if we're not behaving distinctively, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? They can't be converted from slanderers to believers if they don't see conduct that's in accordance with the purity of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are poor ambassadors of our Lord if we're living just like the world. It's okay to be weird for the right reasons, okay? Be weird because we love Jesus. We're following after him. When the world says go this way, but Jesus says go that way, what way should we go? Follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. And this verse is telling us that the purpose of that is so that slanders would turn into God glorifiers. The pattern of your life, friends, has the power to help turn others toward God. So what's the pattern of your life? Are you living for your fleshly passions? Or are you living in a way that, that pleases God? Here's another question another way to put it, and it's convicting to myself too. When was the last time a not yet Christian noticed something different about you because of your commitment to obey Jesus? When was the last time a non-believer said, that's kind of weird. Why do you do that? Are you behaving distinctively? Friends, we're not called to be isolated from the world, but we're also called not to be of the world. And one way that slanderers and not yet Christians can turn into God glorifiers is by behaving distinctively. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to die to yourself and live according to the commitment of obeying Jesus Christ. Well, the next spoke on the wheel comes from Acts 1.8. Please turn to Acts 1.8, page 770. Acts 1.8. The next spoke on our wheel after behaving distinctively and praying for the lost is that we must be relying on the Holy Spirit. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. The last words of Jesus. The very last thing that he said. I mean, it must have been a bizarre conversation. They're asking him questions. They're talking about stuff. And he tells them this. And all of a sudden, his feet start to lift off the ground and they're just watching him go. And that, that must have been just a bizarre sight. I would have been standing there with my mouth open, just amazed. And, uh, but Jesus' last words, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. Two things in the future. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. The ability of being a witness is not contingent upon your own power, disciples, but I'm going to give you power. You will receive power. Now think about that, though. He said, you will be my witnesses. Now that, that's not something that, 
that you do. We often think of witnessing as something that you do. But Jesus in Acts 1.8 says, it's more about who you are. It's a state of being verb. You will be, by identification, my witnesses. You know, sometimes we come up with these bizarre formulas and all these things, and it makes it so confusing and difficult to share the good news about Jesus. Friends, first and foremost, witnesses. You say, I read that something happened. Jesus came. He's the Son of God. He died for sins and rose from the dead. And 500 people saw him all at the same time. I'm a witness to that, and I'm telling you, that's all it is. He says, you're going to be my witnesses about what I did. It's as simple as that. You will be my witnesses, but, but see, that was going to be difficult for them. It's a simple formula. You're going to be a witness, but it's not an easy job. Because to be witnesses, that meant for many of them, they were going to be killed. Rocks were going to be thrown at them. They were going to be hated. They were going to be persecuted. The message is simple. The task is hard. It's hard. And Jesus knew it. He said, you will be my witnesses, but I'm going to give you the power to do it. Where does this power come from? It says it right there in Acts 1-8. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Friends, without the Holy Spirit, we cannot do it. We can't do it. We don't have the strength to go and carry on this mission. We have no strength to see the rubber meet the road and see people actually come to Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we're trying to do it on our own, we're, we're trying to accomplish the impossible. But with God, the Holy Spirit, all things are possible. He gives us the boldness and the sensitivity to seize all the opportunities with our, our day placed before us to be a witness. Friends, He gives us the power God wants to give you the power to be a witness. He wants to give me the power to be a witness. The question is, are we relying upon him for it? An aspect of your identity, friends, is a witness. It's impossible without the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. What was the last time you woke up and confessed your need for the Spirit's power to give you boldness and to give you sensitivity before stepping out into your world? You know, so much of, of my prayer life, again, is, is very self-centered. When did you actually say, Lord, I'm going into a hostile work situation. I'm hearing every four-letter word, words that I didn't even know existed. Uh, I got people upset with me. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I don't feel like I have the power to stand today for your truth. I don't feel like I have the power to be a good representative for you. I can't do it today, Lord. He says, I know. I've got power for you. Rely on the Spirit. He will help you to behave distinctively before a watching world. Maybe you're coming home from that hard day at work and you feel like, oh, I just barely made it. But you're driving up to your house and there's that retired person, you know, across the street, that dude that's got that motorcycle and he's living the good life now. And he wants to talk your ear off for 15 minutes. And you think to yourself, Lord, I do not have the energy to be a witness and an ambassador now. He says, I know. Rely upon me. I will give you the power so that every opportunity that comes across your path, when the rubber meets the road, you will be a witness to what Jesus has done. Friends, you're not doing this on your own. You've got God. 
This Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, up the elevator, and down came the Holy Spirit, and he's given to all of us. He's given to all of us. We have power. Do we rely on him? Do we rely upon him? Do you rely on the Spirit before you go into class? Are you confessing your need for the Spirit before you begin your shift at work or before you step into the office? Well, when's the last time you, you asked for the Spirit's power to be a witness about Jesus at home or in your neighborhood? Friends, the rubber's not meeting the road in our lives of being on mission and maybe because we're not dying to ourselves and saying, I can't do it. Spirit, I need your power today. He promised you will have power. The Spirit is here, friends. The power is at your fingertips. It's impossible to witness without power. It's time that we all started relying upon the Spirit to reach the lost in our world with the gospel. Well, the final spoke in our wheel is found in 1 Peter chapter 3 on page 858. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 15 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm actually going to begin in verse 13. 1 Peter 3, 13. It says this. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I'm in chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. Chapter, excuse me, chapter 1. You know what? Let me start all over. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. It's been a long week, friends. <laughs> Holy Spirit, give me power. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The command here is to set apart Christ as holy. It's, it's the same word as sanctify. Set him apart. Regard him as holy in your heart. But the characteristic of the people that do this, it says, regard Christ as holy, but these are the kinds of people I want you to be. I want you to be Always ready, people. I, I'm ready to go. Put me in the game, coach. I'm ready to play the game. You're prepared. You know that the opportunities that are coming across your path are imminent. I'm setting apart Christ as holy, and I'm ready to go to tell people that he's holy. It's close at hand is the idea there. You're always ready to grab it. I, I envision that, you know, it's that old Western movie, and they're out in the street, and it's that quick draw, you know, scenario, right? Boom. And Clint Eastwood always wins, right? <laughs> it's that quick draw. Are you ready? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to grab what God has given to you, the hope that you have? You can't be caught off guard. You know, when we come to you and, you know, if, if we were to, you know, the, the pastor came in and he came into your room and 
you know, broke down a door and, or if I did it and woke you up, hey, why do you have so much hope? You say, I'm ready to go. Just give me a cup of coffee and I'll be ready to go. But you should be ready to say, I- I'm ready. I'm ready. I can tell you, you know, even if I'm exhausted, I'm tired right now, I'm ready to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Are you ready? Well, what are you ready to do? You're ready to give a defense. It's an account of the reason why you have hope. You're to be the type of person who's ready at a moment's notice to give someone else a reason why you have the hope that they ask you about. When they ask you, it's assuming they're going to ask. Remember, you're behaving distinctively. You're dying to yourself. You're behaving distinctively. And so when they see in your life that you're going through a crisis, you're going through a really hard time, and it's difficult for you and your family, but you know what? There's something distinct about you because you've got hope. And you've got a peace that surpasses all understanding. And people start to see that in your life. And, and, and they come up to you and they say, hey, you know what, I, I just, I just want to say something. I, I noticed that, you know, I know you're going through just the hardest time right now, but I, I can't understand what, what, why is there still joy, even in the midst of your grief? Why is there peace? How can you have so much hope? Friends, when we're in that moment, ready to go. Now, don't do that. But in our hearts, we need to be ready to say, I I can tell you. I I don't have to search long for an answer. Jesus gives me hope. Jesus gives me peace. Be ready to give a defense. Give ready to give a reason why you live the way you live. Get ready to give a reason why you have so much hope. Get ready to, to give them a reason why you have so much peace. But friends, this being ready doesn't mean that you jump all over the person. No. It says in verse 16 that we do this with gentleness and respect. It's a mildness about your interaction. It's a reverence and respect for the opinion of the other person because they may say, oh, well, that's nice for you. You don't jump all over them. Well, if you want to know more about it, I'd be happy to tell you. See, this is the the mildness and the gentleness balances out the weight of being ready because if you're just ready, you might jump all over somebody and ah, and scare them off. But if we're so timid and we're not ready, we may never say a word, but we have to have this balance of gentleness and respect and always being ready. Quick draw. I'm ready to tell you. I'm ready to tell you. I've got the message in my heart. I've got it in my mind. I've got it on my mouth. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready at a moment's notice to give a reasonable response if someone were to ask you, why do you have so much hope? Are you ready? Here's a, here's a test for you today. And if you fail the test, it's okay. God gives grace. He gives grace to me and gives grace to you. If you go out for lunch right now, right now after church, and you go out to a restaurant and you, you just give thanks for the meal, okay, that's behaving distinctively. I live in a way that says I'm grateful to my God for the meal that he put in front of us. And people actually see you praying. And, you know, your server comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I, I noticed you're praying. Or, you know, somebody across the dining room comes over and says, why do you do that? And you are put on the, on the spot right now. Ready, draw. Are you ready? Are you ready, friends, to give a hope? The reason for the hope that you have in your heart. Now, if, if you answer that negatively today and say, I don't think I'm really ready, that's okay. But here's, here's the question I want to ask you. What are you going to do about it? 
what are you going to do about it, friends? We must be ready. We must have the faith ingrained in our being, ingrained in our minds, in our hearts, and on our mouths so that we can be prepared. So I want to ask you today, if you don't feel ready to give a reason, if you're not ready on the draw to give a reason about this gospel, about this hope we have, what are you going to do about it? How can you prepare yourself? What can you do to gird yourself up with this word of God, to make yourself strong in the faith so that you could be ready for the reason? the hope that you have in your hearts? Have you prepared your testimony, your story about what God has done? It shouldn't take more than a, a ride on an elevator, friends. 45 seconds is all you got sometimes. Are you prepared? We must speak boldly and sensitively. Finally, we've got the hub where the rubber meets the road and living on mission in this world to tell people about the good news of Jesus where our theory becomes practice, where, where it's really tested, is that we must first die to ourselves. That's the center of everything. We must pray for the lost. We must be behaving distinctively. We have to rely on the Spirit's power because we can't do it on our own. We have to be speaking boldly and sensitively, always ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And then finally, that outer rim, that last part on the tire, is that we must meet them where they are turn to Mark chapter 2 in closing. Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, 15. It's on page 708. Mark chapter 2. I'm going to try and get the right chapter this time. <laughs> it was a good verse I was reading though, wasn't it? Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 17 of Mark chapter 2. It says this, He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love what it says in Luke chapter 5, 29 about this Levi who's also Matthew. It says that he actually made a great feast for all of his friends. He, Jesus came to Matthew or Levi and he said, hey, Levi, follow me. And he says, I'll do it. You're calling me a tax collector, the filth, the scum of the earth, a great sinner. You're calling me. I get to follow you. This is awesome news. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have a party. And I'm going to invite all of my other scum of the earth friends. And they're all going to come. And we're going to hang out with you, Jesus. And just like you called me to follow you, maybe they'll follow you too, Jesus. You can read it. It's right there in Luke chapter 5. But I love what it also says here in Mark chapter 2 is that Jesus was hanging out with not just a few tax collectors and sinners. It says many tax collectors and sinners. Jesus made a point to spend time with those who needed him the most. Friends, our mission, our mission is not best done in our holy little huddles. Our mission is best done when we do it to those who need it the most. Who in your life needs to meet Jesus through you? 
not just the pastors, not just the staff. They need to hear it through you. You. You have more potential and more power when you go out of this building to reach the world than I ever could standing from this pulpit. You're going to be out on the freeways and in the workplaces and in the marketplaces and in the schools all over our community, and you're entrusted with this mission. You can go and meet them where they're at with the people who need it the most. Are you making sure that the rubber of your life is meeting the, ro- uh, the road of the lost in this world? That's where they're at. They need to meet you. Do you have any points of contact between you and the lost who desperately need the Savior? Now, as we consider this wheel in closing, you've got the hub, and you've got the wheel, and you've got the spokes. And if you've seen a a wheel spinning quickly, those spokes in the center, they, they kind of disappear and blend together, don't they? It kind of becomes a blur. But you can always see the hub, and you can always see the tire. Friends, in your life, people, as, as we look at each other and, and, and love each other, and as the world sees you, they're going to see two things. They're going to see you dying to yourself, and they're going to see you meeting them where they're at. But the regular occurrence of our life, as this wheel is spinning, and we start to get traction in being on this mission of life, of reaching our world with the gospel, is that we'll be praying for them. We'll be behaving distinctively. We'll be relying on the Spirit. We'll be uh, speaking boldly and sensitively. It'll be a constant cycle of what we're doing. But the thing you got to ask yourself is, are you dying to yourself? Are you going to meet people where they're at? This is where the rubber meets the road in this mission. This is where theory turns into practice. Will you go? Will you reach? Will you witness? Maybe it's time today to repent. Maybe you say, Lord, I've been living for myself. I've got to stop and I've got to die to myself. Maybe you've been a lousy prayer for the lost in your world. Start praying. Maybe you've been living just like the world. You need to repent today and you need to start uh, living distinctively. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own and you're so frustrated. God's got more power for you than you could ever imagine through his Holy Spirit. Maybe maybe you're terrified. Maybe you feel like you're not equipped. Oh, be ready on the draw. Quick, ready to speak boldly and sensitively with gentleness and respect. And friends, today I'm so glad we got to worship together. But as we close, it's now time to go and meet them where they are. This is where the rubber meets the road. Friends, will you repent with me today and begin to make a decisive moment in your life to help the people in your life see Jesus? Are you going to keep the car in park? Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus came. I thank you that he didn't stay isolated to himself, but he came that he was willing to sacrifice himself and be buried in the ground so that he could bear fruit here on this platform and out there in that congregation, Father. We are your fruit, but it only happened because Jesus was willing to die to himself and sacrifice himself for others. Help us today as we go. Help us that the rubber would meet the road, that we would not just talk about mission, not just talk about evangelism, but that we would practice it, Father, that we'd get this wheel spinning so that others would see, and that maybe there will just be some that will say, I want to glorify God with you. Oh, we'd throw a party. 
Oh, I pray that there would be all kinds of conversion parties all throughout this congregation because the rubber is meeting the road and we're going to the nations making disciples. Help us now. Again, we need your spirit. We need his power as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends. You're dismissed. <laughs>